Hello, listeners, and welcome to the first ever episode of It's Crime Time, a true crime podcast. In this episode, I will be telling the story of the boy in the box, also known as America's Unknown Child. I found this case interesting because out of all of the true crime I've heard of in my life, which is a lot, by the way, I live for true crime, I've never heard of this, and it happened in my state. Now, granted, it happened years before I was born, but I was just shocked to discover that I had never heard of this before. Okay, everyone, let's get to it. It's crime time. This episode of It's Crime Time is brought to you by Anchor. If you like this podcast and would like to create your own, let me tell you about Anchor by Spotify. Anchor is completely free and has all the creation tools you'll need to record, edit, and distribute your podcast. You can record and edit directly from your computer or phone using the app and let Anchor automatically distribute to the most popular platforms without having any fancy setup. Did I mention they even have video podcasting on Spotify now? And you can earn money through ads and pod subscriptions. Download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm. That's anchor.fm to get started and share your creation with the world. It started in February of 1957 when a man was walking through the woods hunting just north of Philadelphia near Fox Chase Road in Pennsylvania. He was checking the status of his muskrat traps he had placed. And as he was checking his traps... He noticed a cardboard box with the body inside, but he decided against telling the police as he knew his muskrat traps were illegal and he wanted to avoid any brushes with law enforcement. Two days later on February 26th, a college student, Frederick Benosis, came walking through this area and he discovered the body of a young boy nude and wrapped in a flannel blanket inside of a cardboard box that was to hold a JCPenney baby bassinet. Now, this college student was also reluctant to get involved with the police, and there's two stories that I came across as to what he was doing in the area at the time. One was that he had spotted a rabbit along the road, and he knew that there were traps in the woods, so he was chasing the rabbit down to try to protect it from any harm. The second one was that he was spying on girls that attended the Good Shepherd School in that area. I don't think he intended to do the girls any harm. He was just being a young man and spying on them. But he didn't want to have to tell the police what he was doing in that area, especially to have to admit that he was spying on the girls. The next day, he did contact the police to report his findings, however. The boy on the box was estimated to be between three and seven years old, with blue eyes, fair skin, and light brown hair. When he was discovered, his nails had been trimmed and his hair also had had fresh trim because clumps of his hair still clung to his body. His entire body and face had been covered in deep, dark bruises as if he was beaten. Police had a difficult time determining just how long the boy had been in the box due to the cold weather at the time, but they have estimated that it could have been anywhere from two days to three weeks. 
The police indicated that the boy was at some point submerged in water, either before or after his death, as his hands and feet were also wrinkled. They noticed he had some form of an eye ailment or disease. His eyelid was drooping, and there were some surgical scars near his ankle, groin, and under his chin. He'd not been fed a meal for at least two to three hours before his death. He appeared to be severely malnourished and possibly vomited right before passing away as they found some food in his esophagus. The examiners also determined that his ultimate cause of death was blunt force trauma to the head as he had sustained multiple blows to this location. Police collected his fingerprints and footprints and they believed surely he would be identified soon as someone must know their child had been missing and they were sure to miss him dearly. His footprints and fingerprints brought up no matches at any local hospital or at a national level. They then began to focus on another piece of this case, the source of the cardboard box. 12 bassinets had been purchased from JCPenney in the area and every single bassinet was traced back to its owner, except one. No one ever reported their child missing at this time, and no important leads had been reported by anyone. The case later went cold, and his identity had not been determined at the time of his burial in Potter's Field next to Dunks Ferry Road in Mechanicsville. His tombstone read, Heavenly Father, bless this unknown boy. This field was a location where unknown corpses or corpses of the poor were buried. In 1998, His body was exhumed due to new technological advancements in crime solving, and mitochondrial DNA was extracted from his teeth. Now, this would have been a source of maternal DNA, but this did not provide any matches, as the sequence was too small and his body was also in poor shape when exhumed. On November 11, 1998, the boy was reburied in a different location at Ivy Hill Cemetery in a casket that was donated for him. A new tombstone was also added to say America's unknown child. This case is now 62 years old and still remains unsolved. Police personnel who want to continue to investigate the case are becoming too old to continue investigating and some have even passed away, but there's still hope for finding an identification. It is often said that this case was not solved simply due to the time period in which it happened, because technology was just not advanced enough at the time and police did not communicate outside of the jurisdiction or outside of the state of Pennsylvania and surrounding states. And it was difficult to get a case to gain national coverage at this time. In 2016, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children did a facial reconstruction of the boy. And in 2018, the same woman who identified the Golden State Killer, Barbara Ray Venter, released that she was going to use the same type of DNA profiling technique that she used to find the Golden State Killer to identify this boy. In 1960, Remington Bristow, a forensic examiner's office employee, used the aid of a psychic from New Jersey and her visions led him to a foster home located about a mile and a half from the area where the boy was found. So she had never been in this location before. Um, Her visions just led Remington Bristow to this area. 
This foster home housed eight children, so this missing, this boy that was unidentified could have been, you know, the ninth child that lived there. And something a little odd about Arthur Nicoletti, which was the owner of this foster home, was that he just kept refusing a lie detector test. And that's why police officers often thought that he probably had something to do with the boy's death. Bristow attended an estate sale at the foster home and he discovered the same type of bassinet that would have been packaged in the box the boy was found in. And blankets hanging on the clothesline were similar to the blanket that the boy had been wrapped in. Bristow had theories that the boy was the son of the owner's stepdaughter who was disposed of to hide the fact that the girl was unwed when she had a child. So perhaps the boy's death was an accident and they never reported it because she wasn't married at the time and I guess was embarrassed about it. Or that even though the death may have been an accident, he was abused and neglected as it was. So they decided just not to report it because they would have gotten in trouble. This foster home, however, was cleared in 1998. In May of 2002, a businesswoman who was a psychiatric patient of a psychiatrist ended up telling her psychiatrist a story and this psychiatrist actually reported it to the police. This patient was from Cincinnati, Ohio, and she has always been known as Mary or simply M. Now this was not her real name but she claimed that the unknown boy had actually been purchased by her mother from an underground sex trafficking ring. This boy, who her mother named Jonathan, was regularly locked in their basement and abused. The boy was a handicapped boy who was mute. The woman claimed that her mother killed Jonathan by throwing him onto the floor or bashing his head against a wall as she was bathing him in February of 1957 after he had vomited in the bathtub from eating baked beans. The odd thing about this is medical examiners actually did find baked beans in his stomach. And as I had mentioned earlier, his hands and feet were wrinkled from the water and he had vomited shortly before death. It was then determined that no information could ever be proven from this. And M had a history of mental problems, so I'm not exactly sure if they took her seriously. Also, neighbors of M told police they had no knowledge of there ever being a child in her house. Now, of course, there had to have been a child in the house because M was a child at the time. A man also came forward to the police stating that his older half-brother had gone missing. And this just remained a family secret that was never reported. So he was thinking maybe his parents had something to do with the disappearance of his half-brother and they just never reported it because they were involved. There's also been a couple more recent developments, um, one being the author Lou Romano. He tracked down the parents of children born in Philadelphia at this time period and he came across a landlord who had rented his property to this family. And this family just left this apartment in the middle of the night at the time with leftover food, diapers, and their furniture still in the apartment. It was determined that they moved to Memphis. Romano tracked down this family and he actually swabbed the father's DNA. The police have been contacted about if they decided to collect their own DNA sample, but they've not responded. 
Police do believe that the boy was adopted by another family, so perhaps the parents left after giving the boy to this other family, which would make them innocent in this crime. Or perhaps they were responsible for the death of their son and they hid him in the box in the woods and then decided to just leave. Bill Fleischer, a retired city cop, FBI agent, and a U.S. customs agent, remains hopeful that DNA may solve this case. However, only that maternal DNA was collected from his teeth, and DNA mouth swabs did not exist at this time. He does believe that M, or Mary's story, adds up. However, when she was questioned by three detectives, she fled the country after finding out that her real name had been released, and she refused any further cooperation. So nothing ever came of that part of the case either. Today, the unknown boy would be 69 years old, and the case still remains open in name in hopes of his identification. The hope is that an older person will come forward that lived in the area or perhaps knew the boy or even a physician that may have treated him because he did have surgical scars, so he had to have been treated somewhere. My sources for this episode include an a &E article by Hilary Schenfeld, Historic Mysteries, All That's Interesting, an article from Fox 13 Memphis, and an article from the Philadelphia Inquirer. And that's all for this episode of It's Crime Time. If you like this podcast, please continue to listen and subscribe on whatever podcast platform you listen to podcasts on. And join me on Instagram at It's Crime Time Podcast. Thanks for listening.